from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network, this is Young Lawyer Rising. I'm Sonia Russo. For this episode, you'll hear from three young lawyers who have disabilities. I wanted to highlight their stories because for folks that aren't disabled, thinking about disability and knowing how to be a good colleague to our coworkers who are disabled can be a blind spot that maybe you haven't spent much time thinking about. The lawyers you'll hear from today have grit, determination, and perseverance, and their stories inspired me. I hope you'll be inspired too. Let's get started. As always, I like to start with the definition of terms. I asked each of the young lawyers I spoke with what the word disability meant to them. The diversity of their answers was surprising. Beth Hardcastle, a partner at Sidley Austin in Washington, D.C., defined disability this way. To me, disability is an incredibly broad term. I think it captures any sort of difference that we kind of experience in the world. I think the medical definition is you know, some impaired function or body parts or something like that. But to me, I don't often like to think about it that way. I think it's more just some sort of of difference than what other people may expect. John Broadbent is an associate at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek in Denver. When defining disability, he focused more on the legal definition of the term. So, I mean, there's been decades of policy hindering around this, this question um, going all the way back to like the 1920s at least. And it's still debating it. Federal law is not uniformly consistent on the topic either. There's some definitions that include some things like in the Social Security Disability Administration, they have a different definition of disability than than the ADA does. So, and to be clear, I don't practice disability law. I just know that from my research in in this space. So I'm not an expert on this stuff. Um, but um, I would generally agree with the statutory definition found in the Americans with Disabilities Act. I think it does a good job of encapsulating what a disability is, particularly with respect to being regarded as having one. I think it's important because a lot of people may not be seen to have a disability, but they're regarded as having it because there is reasons. That's not the case for me, obviously. Um, I have a speech impairment and a movement disorder that I'll get into later, but um, yeah, that's how I think about disability. Spencer Hill is an environmental and white-collar litigation lawyer in Philadelphia. He defined disability in terms of limits. So to me, uh, disability means it's a, a condition that someone has that limits their ability to compete, right? So it's it takes away your ability to fully exercise what others may be able to fully exercise. For example, a person like myself who is visually impaired, it takes me a little bit longer to read. So I can't drive. It takes me longer to read things. I can't see things far away, right? If I'm in court and like in federal court, if 
the judge is on the bench and I'm at counsel's table, depending on how far it is, I can't read the judge's facial expressions. All three lawyers said that they don't think people need to use the term differently abled. Beth embraces the term disabled because she's proud of her disability. Yeah, I think people have a lot of different views on the terminology and, you know, whether disability is a bad word or not. I personally think disability is a perfect description of of what I have and, and what so many others have. I, you know, even have what I call disability pride. And I think that there's a huge growing movement of having disability pride, you know, being proud of your disability or, you know, kind of taking it from the LGBTQ plus community. I hope they don't mind, but, you know, having that like pride in, in your difference in your disability. So I, I use the word freely. I am not at all offended by it. I think it's a bit about taking words back and, and saying, you know, what they mean to you. And I know others that also use the word differently abled, but for me, I think it's just trying to, it suggests that there's something wrong about the word disability. And, you know, for me, I like just saying how, what it is. <laughs> for John, using the term differently abled is actually more disrespectful because it calls extra attention to the fact that he's different from others. So the term I mentioned a little bit more disrespectful in my opinion, but it comes out of the, the, the term like differently abled with disabilities, other terminology like that. I, I, I'm fine with using the word with disability, that's fine. What I really don't like is differently able because it's kind of like, okay, well, you're trying to, you're trying to acknowledge that I'm able to do something. It's not in the same way that other people do. Which is almost worse than saying the one word disabled. Like, that's the way I think of it anyway. I'm probably like not a test case on that point. But that did my thing. Yeah, and in addition to that, it also like I don't want to take the obvious here, but like, it also lacks a definition. Like, what is, what is, what does it mean to be differently? Like, everybody does think in different ways. That that can't mean that everybody's disabled. Otherwise, the term itself loses meaning. John has a rare genetic condition called osteogenesis imperfecta that weakens his bones and makes it difficult to build muscle. John also has a rare neurologic condition called spasmodic dysphonia that affects his voice and speech, and he has a hearing impairment. John's disabilities, which he's had since birth, impacted his law school education because he couldn't put in as many hours as other students to get the best grades, even though he's just as smart and capable as the people who graduated at the top of his class. The University of Colorado, my law school alma mater, uh, was really good about, about making sure that I, I had the accommodation that I needed. It really didn't affect me that much because... You know, number one, I got the accommodations that I needed. And number two, you know, I'm smart enough. I, I can do it like this. It wasn't really a big thing for me. Like, and, you know, the only area that I could see that it had, had an effect on me is my ability and my desire to 
find out the hours that are necessary to get the top grades. I was never the top student in my, any of my classes. And I'm okay with that because for me, school is always about like learning and expanding your knowledge horizons rather than just getting the top grade for the sake of getting top grade. Um, if I learned something or expanded my thinking in some way, which happened very often, I would consider that a success. Um, I never did poorly in school, obviously. But whether whether top grades came from them was never really a primary concern. Beth's disability was part of why she decided to go to law school. She was in a car accident at 14 and suffered a spinal cord injury, so she uses a wheelchair. Beth was interested in disability law at first and constantly has to advocate for herself. Since lawyers are advocates, it felt like a natural fit. Part of why I wanted to go to law school was to do disability rights. So I think in that sense, you know, my disability certainly had an effect on my law school experience because it was part of why I was there. Another way, I think once you have a disability, you're kind of forced to become an advocate for yourself and what are lawyers but advocates. And so I think I had this, you know, experience going into law school where I kind of already knew what it was like to be an advocate for myself and wanting to do that for others and learning how to do that for others in law school was something I kind of really enjoyed. Beth ultimately decided to go into healthcare regulatory work instead of disability law, although people often assume she's a disability lawyer because of her disability. For Beth, it's crucial for lawyers with disabilities to be well-represented throughout the legal community in different practice areas, not just disability law. I think they always assume that I'm an expert in disability rights law, and I wish I was. I wish I also knew that in addition to my healthcare law practice, which I, I really love. But, you know, I had a mentor of mine in law school say, look, we definitely need lawyers with disabilities doing disability rights law. That's a given. We have to have it. You know, we have to have people who are like us advocating for the disability community. But it's also so important to have people with disabilities in corporate America on the bench, you know, doing prosecution, doing defense work. We really just need to permeate the entire legal community. Spencer's disability is a vision impairment. He didn't start to lose his eyesight until he was 28 years old. In fact, Spencer had always had excellent vision before that, and he was an athlete growing up. Spencer was newly disabled when he started the law school admissions process. So just to give you a little context, I was not born visually impaired. Um, This was something that occurred later on in life. I was an athlete growing up, and so I had 20-20 vision. I was the, you know, example of, of health and and all that stuff. And then when I hit 28 or 29 years old, I began to lose my vision. And so, yes, it did affect me in law school, but I was also a newly disabled person. And I was really learning how to live with disability when I began to apply for law school when I was in college, because I went back to school late. I was an adult student. So I was learning how to deal with disability uh, while I was in college. And yes, being visually impaired, I'm legally blind, not fully blind, which means I can see some things, um, but I don't see well. My vision is very blurred. I don't have peripheral vision. You basically have to be right directly in front of my face in order for me to see you. So yes, it did affect me in law school. It actually affected me 
prior to law school. I remember I was taking the LSAT. I had registered to take the LSAT because I knew I wanted to go to law school. So I registered to take the LSAT. But I didn't know at that time that I was entitled to accommodations as a disabled person. And so I went in and took the LSAT with the visual impairment uh, without accommodations. And I was using magnifying glasses and all kinds of things while I was taking the tests. And the time crunch really, really got to me. And so I really feel like had I known I could have gotten accommodations and taken the LSAT, I probably could have done better than I did. You know, I did well enough to get into law school, which is the ultimate goal. But I could have probably done better. And when I was looking around to look at the other students who were taking the exam, they just looked like they had an easier time while I was struggling to meet the time requirements and read the questions and fill in those little bubbles that were hard to see with the little pencil. And so that was the first experience of my disability affecting me, you know, going to law school. For Spencer, a huge challenge in the admissions process was that he didn't know that he could request accommodations for the LSAT. He believes that the law school admission council, the entity that administers the LSAT, could have done a better job communicating that accommodations are available. But I know in my case, I just didn't know that I could request accommodations. When I was registering for the exam, I don't remember being asked the question. I don't remember it being on the web page anywhere visible, you know, where I could easily access it, easily find it. You know, I was newly disabled, so I didn't know what my rights were, didn't know what I was allowed to do. And I just knew I needed to take this test to get into law school. And so that's what I did. But to the extent that in the last 10 years, you know, LSDC hasn't changed the website or made it easily accessible for a person with a disability to know that they can request accommodation and step-by-step how to do it. I think that would be the change that needs to happen. And it, it may already have. Like Spencer, Beth didn't get accommodations for the LSAT. She also did not get them for the bar exam, even though she'd received accommodations during law school. Because when Beth was in grade school, they were not well documented. Without that documentation, Beth could not prove that she was entitled to accommodations for the LSAT or the bar exam. So in law school, we had a great accessibilities office and and disability office, and they were very accommodating, which was absolutely fantastic. And so I was able to get extra time for exams because my spinal cord injury affects my hands. And so I, I do type and write slower. You know, getting accommodations at law school is different than getting accommodations at the LSAT, which is different than the bar exam. You know, I couldn't get accommodations on the LSAT or the bar exam because I didn't have this history of documented accommodations going back since I was, you know, a child. (laughs) And they often really require really strict rules to get accommodations on those tests. So it, it, it is a challenging process. But I also feel very strongly that both in law school and those tests, so much of it was just how much can you get on a page as fast as you can in the short amount of time that you have on these tests. And being a healthcare regulatory lawyer is never about how many words can I get on a page as fast as possible. (laughs) I'm very confident in my ability to be a fantastic lawyer that does not need extra time to do my assignments now. But, you know, it's because it's not about the same skill that you're being tested on in law school often and on the bar exam, which is just how much can you get on a page as quickly as possible. (laughs) I personally can't imagine the terrible stress of needing accommodations, but not getting them for the bar exam. 
John had to jump through some extra logistical hurdles in submitting his documentation for accommodations while he was studying, which was a huge distraction. It was also very stressful because he didn't learn that he would receive the accommodations he needed until shortly before the bar exam. No, I had issues in two One with my fault and the other with nothing. Well, with my fault was I didn't know what the deadline were for the bar application process. So I found out in like early March that all of the bar, all of the bar applications and the accommodation requests were due in mid-March. And I was like, oh crap, this is not good at all. <laughs> they, would, they would probably send me down about it from the, from the, to use the faculty about it, like when to apply. But I got like five emails from them a day about it. I wasn't going to read all of them, so I missed that. <laughs> so that was my fault, for sure. But um, what wasn't my fault was after I got everything in, then like, I submitted my application and my request for a combination on the bar exam at the same time in like mid March, as I mentioned. And they took their speech card with them. I did not hear back from them until May, pretty much after I graduated. And and I was left hanging out, like, whether I'll have a combination or not on the bar exam that was in July. So I was, I was in the position of studying for the bar exam on a test that I didn't know for sure what the structure of it would be. So that was annoying. And what was more annoying was they were like, they called me a couple of times and they were like, oh, you know, we have a process that we want to like get through. Our process involves having experts review, review your files and determine what, what exactly we would need. And just, um, the people said, and basically, like, your requests are really unprecedented and we need to, we need to take a deep hard look at this, pretty much. They, she was, they were essentially saying that, that I didn't need the accommodation that I, that I had gotten all too logical because I didn't ask for anything except for what I got in law school. And... I made that clear to them, look, like, if you don't give me that, there's a very high likelihood that I'm not gonna bat the bar. And additionally, the fact that you guys have an expert in some field that I don't know about is not sufficient for understanding how my disabilities affect me. You're not going to find someone who's an expert in both OI and spasmodic dysphonia that can give a, a 
even reasonable opinions about what I need for accommodation. Because as far as I know, no expert exists in that in that front. And, and <laughs> the funny thing is they tried to bite back on that. They were like, oh, well, you don't know that for sure. And, you know, but I was like, okay, cool. You know, like, this is a bonus man. All I need to do is pass. And you guys are going to die on this hill for, like, so eventually a month later in June, literally a month before the bar exam, they finally said, okay, well, you, you're going to have to eat. You're going to have the accommodation that you requested in March. So it ended up working well, but it took a very long time. It's called the Latin Edit on my part. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back, listeners. We now continue our episode about young lawyers with disabilities. With more grit and perseverance than most of us had to summon, John, Spencer, and Beth all became lawyers. I was curious about their experiences searching for jobs after law school. Beth has some great advice for those who have a visible disability. Yeah, I think. Whether or not to disclose and when to disclose that you have a disability to an employer is such a personal decision. And it's based on so many factors that I don't feel like I could really give broad advice on the subject. For me, because my disability is visible, I you know use a wheelchair, I'm going to wheel into any interview uh, that I, I have. Um, I don't really have the choice of not telling an employer. So for me, it's kind of evident you know, we are in the world of Zoom interviews now. So I guess I haven't really rethought how I could maybe hide my disability if I ever want to change jobs, which I, I certainly don't. But, you know, notwithstanding our new Zoom world, uh, I never really had that consideration of, oh, maybe I'll wait to disclose my disability. 
So I, I think it is a very personal decision. I was certainly looking for law firms that I thought would celebrate my disability, you know, and be accommodating, not something that they would hire me just to check a box or to appease, you know, one or two individuals um, who maybe had an interest in disability. I really wanted a firm that was accommodating, that took diversity seriously, because, you know, at a law firm environment, there probably will be only a few individuals with, or a small percentage of individuals who are out and open about having a disability. And so I've really benefited from the broader, diverse community at Sidley, where we have a diverse associates committee that's all of the different buckets of diversity, which has been really welcoming and fantastic. That's what I was looking for in a firm. And, you know, I think there are a lot of great firms out there. They all talk about their diversity statements and how much they care about it. It's important, I think, to make sure that the law firms include disability in that diversity statement. But I think law firms have come a long way. There's certainly more to do, but yeah, definitely come a long way. Spencer has an invisible disability or a disability that's not immediately obvious when you first meet him. His approach was similar to Beth's. He decided to be upfront to ensure he was joining a firm that was the right fit. When I interview, when I interviewed at law firms in Philadelphia looking for positions in the summer while, uh, you know, my 2L summer, I was just upfront about it. I would go through the interview because I was also vetting different firms. I was fortunate enough to, I did well in law schools. I had options, right? I had more than one law firm that was interested in me. And so I was doing, they were interviewing me, but I was also interviewing them. When it interview got to a certain point where it looked like a firm was interested in making an offer, I let them know up front, hey, this is my condition. If I come to work for you, here's what I'm going to need in order to be as successful as I can be. And if it's something that you're willing to do, then we can move forward and, you know, have another interview. And if not, then I was okay with that. But when I was interviewing, I was letting potential firms know that I'm blind and, you know, here's what I'm going to need to be successful. Some of you might be wondering whether Spencer was scared to be upfront with employers. He wasn't. Spencer was 37 when he graduated from law school, so he had the benefit of life experience in deciding to fully embrace his disability during his job search. For me, it wasn't. And I think it was because, again, I was an adult student. I didn't graduate law school until I was 37, right? And so as an adult who's been, I had been out in the workforce, I had some life experience. I knew that, hey, I'm going to be up front. They're going to take it or they're going to leave it. And if they leave it, then there will be another opportunity that that opens up. But I could see, you know, if I was a 22 or 23 year old law student, how how it would it could be a scary thing to think that, well, I'm disabled and they may look at me and think that I, I can't do it. Right. Even though I know that I can, I've proven that I can. I've gone through law school. I'm as good as my peers. I just need whatever the accommodation is and I can be just as good. But there could be a fear that, you know, someone will look at you as less than or that you can't do it maybe because you can't see or you can't hear or you may be in a wheelchair. That is definitely a real fear that I know persons with disabilities have. But for me, I was a fully functioning adult. I had some work experience. I had life experience. And I knew that if there was a a place that didn't want to accept, you know, what I offered because of my disability, then it would have been their loss. Ultimately, as you're looking for a potential employer, whether you're disabled or not, Spencer says that it's all about evaluating the employer's culture. I was looking for a culture 
where I could come and flourish, right? Because that was the most important thing to me. Like, it wasn't about a, a salary, which, I mean, salary is important and you should consider it, but that wasn't my main focus. I was really interested in the culture. I wanted to work with good people. I wanted to be around people who were compassionate, who were, you know, family people, who were just genuine people who loved the law and enjoyed working with each other. And so when I was vetting firms, I was looking at the culture because, I mean, let's be honest, there are firms out there that are just places where you go to work, you put in hours and you don't necessarily enjoy it. You're a workhorse, you go there, you bill hours. But there are other places where people matter. And I wanted to go to a place where the people matter. And so when I was vetting firms, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for a culture, uh, a place where I could go and I could trust that whatever I needed, they would be there. I was looking for more of a, a family type atmosphere, you know, a, a professional family, if you will. The legal profession still has a long way to go to be truly welcoming to lawyers with disabilities. All three lawyers I spoke with echoed the same thing. Folks with disabilities just want to be treated like everyone else because they're just as capable, even if they might need a little more time to do something. Beth has this advice for employers. I would say treat them just as you would treat anybody else. You know, have the same expectations for work product for a junior associate, you know, with a disability versus without. And they can let you know if they need accommodations, you know, maybe if they have special circumstances for traveling or something like that. But I would say go into it with the same expectations you would with anyone else, because we we got here same as anyone else. We we did take those tests and maybe we had to do it uh, in a much more difficult way because we didn't have accommodations. So yeah, treat them the same, give them the same mentoring opportunities, give them the same practice development opportunities and growth. And I think they'll be successful. Spencer also echoed that a person's disability is a strength, not a liability. And it gives him compassion and perspective that a person without a disability might not have. One of the things that I wish people would better understand is that we're not really that much different. I mean, I may not be able to see, but it doesn't affect the way I think, right? In fact, my inability to see sometimes gives me an advantage when it comes to, you know, other aspects. I think it makes me a little bit more compassionate. I may uh, be able to interpret things from a client or a potential client that, you know, a person who doesn't have a disability may not see. Uh, I, can give you a, I can give you an example. I remember I was out with my wife and we were in a store shopping for clothes. And the young lady who was behind the register was asking for an email. You know, they take your, your information, your email. They want to send you advertisements or sales or anything. My wife was giving her the email address and the young lady was asking her to repeat. Can you repeat that? Can you repeat that? Like she needed each letter repeated. And I saw my wife maybe not understanding why she having to keep repeating herself. And she, maybe she thought it was the way she was saying something. And I kind of took over because I saw that the young lady may have had a disability. And it turns out that she did. So she needed it to be repeated because she was dyslexic. And so she had to go one letter at a time. And so I was able to kind of recognize that and, you know, mediate the situation and, and make it easier for the young lady to take our information so she could do her job and that we can enjoy our experience. I mean, that's not a legal example. That's a life example. But the same is true in law. If we're speaking to a client or a potential client or, you know, if there's a witness on the stand or we're questioning and something's may not seem 
normal to the average person. Um, it, it may be that, you know, I recognize that this person is struggling for a different reason. And so the disability sometimes works as an advantage. And I, one of the things that I wish the legal profession in general would understand and appreciate is the value that a disability can bring instead of just looking at the disadvantage that it causes. If you're a young lawyer with a disability, all three lawyers I spoke to have a message for you. You can do this. You can be part of the legal profession and you can thrive. John, Beth, and Spencer all spoke about the importance of networking and finding mentors, even if it requires you to step out of your comfort zone and contact people, sometimes out of the blue. John encourages lawyers with disabilities to reach out and make those connections, even if it feels uncomfortable at first. I will say it's a very long process with a lot of ups and downs. You're not going to enjoy most of it, but... You know, the parts that you do enjoy will stick out for you. And the best advice that I can hear is from my personal experience, networking has made a really big difference for me. I mean, from a professional standpoint, you really got to network and make sure that people are receptive to you and, you know, if someone sits down and and talk to you for a coffee or in a more formal interview or whatever, send them a thank you email. And if they reply, that means that they're really interested in keeping that conversation going. And, you know, at that point, as a disabled person, that's the point where you know that that person is worth engaging with. Because you already know that they, they've met you before, they know all about your disabilities, and they still want to hang out with you. That, that's a real connection that you can make with them, and from there, things can blossom. I know it's really hard to break in sometimes, but believe me, like, <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> um, especially if you want to practice a different type of law than disability law specifically. Like and for corporate law. I got I got my job now in large part because I was a financial analyst and I knew I knew MA and I knew how to value value a company and I knew all the business rationale that comes into how deals are done even before I went to law school. So that was why I got a leg up in, in my practice. Um, and I can tell you from a, from a legal standpoint that that has, that has really helped me in my practice because I can sort of see issues that um, that others might not have seen. Like, there's, I don't want to get any examples, but um, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways that, that my own background has helped me in my experience. Uh, good people are in every field of law. It just takes a little extra luck to find us. Networking isn't limited to just learning more about job opportunities and different practice areas. It can also help you evaluate employers. 
Spencer used his network to try to figure out what potential employers were really like. One thing I, I think is important in evaluating culture, because you're right, it, it can be really difficult, especially when you're a, a law student and you're coming in as a summer associate or whatever it is, coming in an interview. They're trying to impress you, so they're going to put on their biggest show, right? But you got to be able to, to pull back the curtain and see what, what the firm's really about. And there's a couple of ways that I did that. One, I would go into my network, right? There's a network of lawyers for law students, and you can, you can ask people that you trust, hey, what do you know about this firm? Ask someone where you can get an honest answer from. And usually they'll tell you, you know, behind closed doors, well, I know someone at this firm and here's the experience that they had. Ask an associate, right? Invite them out for lunch or coffee or dinner or whatever it is. And, you know, really dig in and ask them, hey, what was your, what's your experience like at the firm? You know, ask them to be candid. And I find that people usually are. Other markers that you can look for is I look for the diversity. I wanted, when I looked at a firm, I wanted to see okay, what does their partnership look like? How many women are partners as compared to men? I looked at the age range of the partnership. I looked at cultural and racial diversity. So there were, there were a lot of factors that I looked for. And those things in and of themselves, you know, individually may not give you an accurate reading, but when you look at it collectively, there's a firm where there's, you know, 45 or 50% women in the partnership and there's young and there's old and there's racial diversity. All those things, collectively will let you know that, hey, this is a firm where people can come and flourish, or you, you can look at one place and say, hey, that's, that's the old guard, and that's a firm that's not really willing to change, and maybe that's not the firm for me. Beth said that she never turns away another lawyer with a disability who reaches out. She encourages disabled young lawyers to build relationships with mentors who also have disabilities. I would say try to find a mentor with a disability maybe in the type of legal area that you're interested in or even outside. Um, I have benefited so much from mentors throughout my career and seeing people with disabilities being successful lawyers has been you know, incredibly helpful for me. I've had lots of law students reach out to me and ask about my career and being an attorney with a disability. I never say no to them. Like it's, it's so fun to talk to law students with disabilities who are interested in the legal profession. I can't think of any attorney with a disability who would say no to a student who wanted to talk to them. So it can seem scary because you don't know this person and you're just kind of emailing them out of the blue. But I think we all recognize that we've benefited from people who've come before us and we kind of want to pass that along. So Try to reach out, find a mentor, find someone who has a disability who's done it, um, and, and they can connect you with others if they're maybe not a good fit. But that would be my number one advice to, to law students with disabilities. As you're out there networking, keep in mind that the person you're interacting with may have an invisible disability. Spencer shared this story with me about how his disability impacts his career. But the other aspect of being a lawyer is the, is the social aspect, right? We have to network. We have to go to mixers. We have to go to bar events. We have to build relationships because ultimately those are the things that will impact your practice of law and whether or not, you know, determine sometimes how far you can advance. And those things can be hard for me. Like it's, it's hard to go into a dark room at a PBA or a, a bar association event and recognize faces, right? And it's hard to, you know, someone gives you a business card to read what their name is. I can't see you know, you hand me a business card, I still don't know because I can't, <laughs> I can't read it, the print's too small, or I can't read your name tag. And so those things can be 
difficult to navigate, especially if it's someone you met before and they walk up to you and they're five feet in front of you, but you don't recognize them because you can't see their face. So one of the things or some of the things that I do to try to address that is take someone with me, right? If there's another lawyer that I know um, who's also going to the event, we, we go together and then I can, you know, I have another set of eyes to help me out. Or when you go to enough of places, people know that they have to walk up to you and tell you who they are because you can't see them from a distance. Or I'll just let uh, people know if it's the first time I'm meeting them. Hey, I can't see too good. So if you want to shake my hand, you got to actually walk up and put your hand in my face and then I'll shake it because if you just hold it out, I may not see it. And if someone holds their hand out for you to shake it and you don't see it, they don't know that you're not able to see. It could be taken as, you know, somewhat disrespectful or inconsiderate that you just kind of didn't shake their hand. Spencer's experience will change how I network for the rest of my career. He reminded me that you never know what someone else is going through or living with. Speaking with John, Beth, and Spencer reaffirmed for me that as a legal community, we have to open our hearts and our minds to meet people where they are. If we can interact with each other with true generosity and kindness, we'll make our profession better for all of us. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. If you'll permit me a point of personal privilege, this is my last episode of Young Lawyer Rising. It's been such a fantastic opportunity to create my own podcast from the ground up, and I'll always be grateful to Chris Brown, the ABA Young Lawyers Division chair, who gave me this opportunity. He believed in me and connected me with the resources to make this podcast happen. Even better, he gave me complete editorial freedom. I wish everyone could have the kind of opportunity I've had to create this show, and I'll always be grateful to him. I also want to thank our executive producer, Lawrence Coletti, and our fantastic audio engineer, Adam Lockwood, for their long hours of work on this podcast as we powered through marathon recording sessions, dialed in the writing and tone of the show, and did everything we could to deliver an excellent product. I'll truly miss working with them on this show. And thank you to my friend Vince Tong for coming up with the name of the podcast. You're a genius, my friend. Finally, I want to thank Matthew Kerbis for his support, encouragement, and the amazing segments and episodes he contributed. He's been a true team player on this show, and I could not have done it without him. I worked on this podcast because I wanted to make the path easier for all of us by sharing stories from young lawyers. In parting, I want to share my own piece of hard-earned advice that might make the path easier. Be kind to yourself. 
This is a tough profession, and we hold ourselves to impossibly high standards. To make a mistake is to be human. In being kind to yourself, you honor the human experience, and you'll also be able to better show up for your loved ones. Thank you for listening. I'm so grateful for all of you. Thank you to Beth Hardcastle, Spencer Hill, and John Broadbent for sharing their deeply personal stories with me. This episode was produced by me and Lawrence Coletti with edit and mix by Adam Lockwood. One last time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.